A reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The word of the Lord. Thanks. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistle it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife named Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Father, we've been uh, reading this uh, story for the last few weeks, um, wrestling through uh, its implications um, and what it means and And what it means to be made for you and yet to be exiled from you and then brought home to you. Father, will you give us insight now? Lord, I pray that, that each aspect of that story 
to be made for you, to be exiled from you, to be brought home by you. Make all of that vivid. Make all of that. Uh, grant that each of us might discover that story to be the deepest story underneath all the other stories of our lives. And Father, I pray that uh, as we um, consider the story yet again, that you will that you will come after us, come seeking us. Many of us have walked with you for a long time, but but we never graduate beyond needing to be found by you. And some of us have never been found by you, and we really need to be found by you, and we can't find you, but you can find us, so come and find us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, and uh, please turn back to those uh, readings. Uh, we're going to be mainly on uh, uh, page 10, there at the very end of the reading. So um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we, you know that this is our third time looking at these readings. It's really one reading. It's Genesis chapter 3. And it means that this is the third time we have been thinking about the idea of the judgment of God and the sin of humanity. Today, I, we're, we're going to think a little bit about some of the implications. One of the questions that's up for me is this. On the one hand, what is it that comes up for you when you think about the judgment of God and the idea of human sin? I don't know that we talk about it that much. So what comes up for you? And on the other hand, the question that comes up for me is, uh, what, what difference is the idea of the judgment of God and human sin, what difference is that supposed to make in our lives? Uh, so let, let me try to set this up. So um, one of the big themes in the Bible is, uh, and it starts right here, is the idea that God holds all of us uh, accountable for uh, our moral life. And more specifically than that, in this reading that we just heard, this is a moment when Adam and Eve, the first humans who are made for a relationship with God, nevertheless, they reject that relationship through uh, disobedience, through sin, eating the tree that they're not supposed to eat, and then they're exiled. God sends them out of the garden. And that's the beginning of a theme that gets bigger throughout the whole of the Bible. And it's the idea that God holds us uh, responsible for our sin, for our moral failings, for our rebellion against him. Every one of us is going to have to reckon with that. That's what the Bible teaches. And, and I guess what comes up for me is just, I want to, what do you make of that? And what difference should it make in our lives? What are the implications? And even now, I can hear, I can imagine all kinds, and I've heard all kinds of, um, of objections. In fact, I feel them, don't you? Uh, I can hear somebody saying, um, oh, the Christian, Christians, the sin, 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 sin. Um, I can imagine somebody saying, you Christians, you have just a ridiculously pessimistic view of the world. Ugh. Um, it's, it's a terrible burden. Can you identify with that? Or I can hear somebody saying uh, the idea that of the judgment of God is scary, and it is. And I can imagine somebody saying, um, I don't want to live in a scary, scary world like that. I don't want to believe in a God of judgment. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said 
um, no one can really love a God who judges. Can you feel the weight of those objections? I can, and I hear them, and I feel them. But what I want to show you today is that if we take Genesis 3 seriously, it's not going to lead us into fear. It's not going to cut us off from the love of God. Quite the contrary. Actually, if we take Genesis 3 and this story very, very seriously, it will lead us to become a community marked by humility and hope and holiness. What? Yeah. For a minute, I'll, I'm going to explain this, but for a minute, just think about humility. Think about how much of our world, how much evil in our world goes on because we are uh, deeply proud, deeply arrogant, and deeply selfish. Yes? Imagine what it would be like if we were deeply humble. Imagine how different uh, Thursday, you know, Thanksgiving dinner would be if we were all humble. On the other hand, uh, think about hope. Um, think about the despair that is around us in our world. We talked about this a lot, but you turn on the news and there's an enormous amount of despair going around and there's good reasons for despair. But imagine what it would be like if we could have a rigorous hope, not a hope that cuts off the difficulties and the tragedies of our world, but one that can look it right in the eye and say, yet nevertheless, we have hope. Uh, and holiness. What does that mean? I mean, uh, deep and profound and lasting moral transformation. Imagine if there was a way for, some, for, for us to be freed from the, the moral hang-ups and the moral flaws that sabotage our lives. What if there was a path to true holiness, moral transformation? Humility and hope and holiness, we need it. And I want to argue that if we take Genesis chapter 3 very, very seriously, it shows us the pathway there. Can I... Would you come with me into it? Let's go. Okay, first of all, I want to show you that uh, Genesis chapter 3, the judgment of God leads us uh, into holiness. Go to the reading. Look at verse uh, 22. It says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, stop there. Uh, the question that comes up for me is, in what way is Adam and Eve like God? And is that a bad thing? And then look at verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him into exile, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he is taken. So my question is, why does God send Adam and Eve out of the garden? What's up with the exile? Well, remember the context. We've been uh, talking about this all fall. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, God makes humanity in his own image and likeness. One of the things that that means is that from the very beginning, God created and designed humanity to be like him in some deep and remarkable way. God designed us with an incandescent dignity. From the very beginning, his gift. And here's how the plan was supposed to work. Our relationship with God from Genesis 1 and 2 was meant to be animated by gift and gratitude and intimacy. Uh, gift. Uh, God gave Adam and Eve absolutely everything that they needed. 
And that was to call forth gratitude as Adam and Eve received everything that they needed from God, every hunger that was fulfilled by all the trees of the garden and the beauty that was around them. As they received that gift, it was to spark a response of gratitude. And as the gift of God and the gratitude of humanity joined hands, it was to forge a remarkably powerful bond of love, intimacy. God gave us the gift of his image, and we were meant to express that image of God by growing into deeper intimacy with him. That's how we were to become like God. But the snake, in our reading, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the snake, who's the embodiment of evil, we find out later it's the devil, the snake tempts Adam and Eve to become like God, not through intimacy, but through autonomy. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. The knowledge of good and evil there isn't about knowing the difference between good and evil because God had already taught Adam and Eve the difference between good and evil through his commandment. The word knowledge in verse 22 can be translated and can bear the meaning to determine, to kind of determine for yourself what right and wrong is going to be. And so what the snake wants the Adam and Eve to do and what they eventually go for is they, uh, they're to, he, snake wants them to de declare their own autonomy from God, to set themselves up as their own authority over and against God. So the snake tempts them to kind of dethrone God and place themselves in the place of God. And one of the surprises is that in verse 22, God kind of recognizes that that's happened. He says they've become like us a little bit. But that's precisely why they have to leave the garden. What it, why is that? The Garden of Eden was the sanctuary of gift and gratitude and intimacy. The garden was the sanctuary where we were to become more like God through intimacy with him. But now Adam and Eve have rejected that. Outside the garden is the realm of autonomy. That's where they can have a go at becoming like God on their own steam without his gift. And that's where we find ourselves naturally. But here's what I want to show you. When God exiles Adam and Eve, it reveals both the dignity of humanity on the one hand, and the disaster of sin on the other hand. How does, it reveal the, how does it reveal human dignity? It reveals human dignity precisely because God honors Adam and Eve's choice. God honors their agency. God treats them as morally responsible agents. He doesn't patronize them. Um, he takes them with deadly seriousness. And the, the fact that he takes them so seriously is an indication of the dignity that he holds them in. We were made in the image of God, which means on the one hand, human beings are not uh, animals driven by instinct, nor are we entirely helpless products of our environment. Rather, God made us to be exalted human beings, but that means that we are also culpable for our decisions. And the sentence of exile is perhaps ironically a witness to our dignity. But it is also a witness to the disaster of sin. 
Verse 23, outside the garden, uh, Adam has to work the ground. Now, that doesn't sound like a disaster, but just think with me for a minute. Inside the garden, everything comes by gift, by grace. Outside the garden, everything comes by Adam's toil. Inside the garden, God's gift provokes a response of gratitude. Outside the garden, Adam's uh, uh, self-reliance gives birth continually to pride and to arrogance that we all know so much in our lives and in our hearts. Inside the garden, gift and gratitude join together to yield intimacy with God. But now outside the garden, toil and pride end only in death. So Adam works the ground. He's relying upon himself. And all the while, he's digging in the ground. He's digging in the very ground in which he will eventually be buried. Because verse 19 says, from dust he came and to dust he will return. And here's the point. Sin promises that we can become godlike. But sin never delivers on the promises it makes. Sin promises that we can become godlike, but death, all of our approaching death is a witness that sin is a liar. Our approaching death, for all of us, is a sign of the disaster of sin. And here's why this matters for us. A clear view of God's judgment against sin should make us a humble people. And real humility, Emmanuel, holds together both the dignity of humanity, an exalted view of humanity, and also keeps in view the disaster of sin. And we have to hold it together if we're going to be humble. Because if we forget the disaster of sin and we only think about human dignity, then we will end up being naive about evil, evil within our world and evil that is resident in our own hearts, and we cannot afford that. But on the other hand, if we forget the dignity of humanity and we only think about the disaster of sin, then we'll end up being cynical. We'll end up being just utterly pessimistic. And the Bible's view of God's judgment allows us to see both the exalted nature of human life and also why it is that the disaster of sin means we need to be rescued. We are to be humble. However, secondly, the judgment of God also should make us hopeful. Really? Yeah. Go back to the reading. Do you notice how uh, careful God is to guard the tree of life? Uh, so you can see it real clearly in verse 24. God stations angels with a big fiery sword to keep Adam and Eve from sneaking back into the garden and having a bite off the other tree, the tree of life. Why? Why does God, why is God so concerned to guard the tree of life? Well, part of it is this. God is committed to protecting his ultimate good purpose for the world and for humanity. What does that mean? Well, think about the tree of life for a moment. The tree of life is like an emblem, an epicenter of God's great goal for humanity. Gift, gratitude, intimacy. So the original plan, as I've already kind of mentioned, Adam and Eve were to receive the fruit of the tree of life. It was a personal gift from God. And as they received that personal gift from God, it gave them biological life, but it also was to give them spiritual life, meaning it was to spark a gratitude to God 
which the gift received and the gratitude returned was to join together and create a bond of intimacy and love. Biological life joined with spiritual life. But Adam and Eve rejected that. They preferred their autonomy. Now, if they eat from the tree of life without being reconciled to God, what's going to happen is they're going to distort the meaning of the tree of life. They're going to distort the meaning of God's ultimate purpose for the world. What? Let me explain. If Adam and Eve, so to speak, sneak back in and <clears throat> eat from the tree of life, they might get biological life, but they wouldn't get spiritual life. And it would be a tragic distortion of God's plan. They'd be saying, God, I don't want you, but I want your stuff. Give me biological life, but I don't want anything to do with you. And there's something terribly perverse and twisted in that. You know, imagine like a 30-year-old man who uh, uh, calls up his mom one day and he says, hey, mom, um, you were a good mom. You did all the things you were supposed to do. I don't really want to talk to you anymore. I don't want anything to do with you. Don't call. Don't write. I'm not coming home. I'm just, you're not going to see me. But Venmo my allowance. Okay, what would you say to that? Uh, it's perverse. It's exploitative. It's a terrible distortion of something that is meant to be beautiful. And Adam, eating from the tree of life, would be like that. It would take the sacred vision of intimacy and love that's what humanity is made for, and it would twist it and just make it something for my hunger to consume. And God says no. And God's no is a word of hope. And here's why. It means that God is preserving the tree He's preserving his plan. He's saying that human sin is not going to cancel God's overarching plan for the goodness of creation and the ultimate flourishing of humanity. And how do we know that? We know it. It's confirmed at the very end of the Bible. Do you know what's in the very last chapter of the Bible? The tree of life. At the very end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is there, and it still stands. And what that tells us is that from the very beginning, when sin tried to uh, uh, stage a revolution and an insurrection and overthrow God's plan, God's good plan for humanity and for the history, God said, no, the tree of life is going to be preserved. No, sin, you're not going to ruin the tree of life because I've got plans. I've got plan for history. I've got a plan for humanity, and I'm not going to let sin ruin it. And that's why we can have hope. Not hope in ourselves. Not hope that we humans are going to be able to sort out all our problems, but rather we can have hope because the tree of life stands, because God protected it, and that means that God has an irrepressible resolve to defeat evil and vindicate the good. And Emmanuel, if... God is guarding the tree, then it means we must not give in to despair. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to despair about in this world. 
When I look at my own heart, I find plenty of reasons to despair at various points in my life. But if God is guarding the tree of life, then it means that God's plan stands even when I fall. But of course, the question then is in the midst of my sin, when I look at the despair, the reasons for despair within my own heart, when I look at my failings, okay, fine, God's tree of life kind of in the abstract exists someplace, but how do I get at it? How do I get back to that intimacy for which I was made? And at the beginning of the Bible, we have the tree of life. At the end of the Bible, we have the tree of life. And it says that the tree of life's fruit is for the healing of the nations. And right in the middle, we have another tree. And it's the tree of Jesus Christ. It's the tree of the cross. And Jesus Christ came and climbed up upon the tree of death, the tree of the cross, and he transfigured it into a tree of life for you and me. And he did it in this way. What he did is Jesus who had perfectly experienced intimacy with God. He allowed himself and volunteered to enter into our exile, to take upon himself our sin, to, take, to stand under the judgment of God on our behalf. He volunteered to, so to speak, walk up to that flaming sword that stands between us and the tree of life and to walk through and to be killed by the flaming sword of God's judgment. And he did that so that you and I could walk in free of charge and to feast on the tree of life. And that's why we can have hope. It's also why we can become holy. Because holiness is when God transforms us morally from the inside out. And how does that happen? It happens like this. It's a repetition of the garden. It's about gift, it's about get gratitude, and it's about intimacy. Because when you look at the cross of Christ, when you look at the tree of death that became for us in Christ the tree of life, when you see the magnitude of Christ's gift to us, the fact that he gave all that he is for us at the cost of all of his life at an infinitely high cost, when you see the magnitude of God's gift to you in Jesus Christ, it's a greater gift than Adam and Eve ever received. When you see the magnitude of that gift, it calls forth a response of gratitude of gratitude that is full of joy, of gratitude that's the, the sort of exquisite joy of one who has been in captivity but is now set free. And when that gratitude awakens within your heart the gift of the cross and the gratitude of the human soul set free, join hands together and they create an unbreakable bond of love, a bond of intimacy which is the first taste of heaven. And when you know that intimacy and that love, then Emmanuel, you are are already beginning to taste and see that the Lord is good. You're already beginning to taste the tree of life. You are tasting the sweet benefit of God's goodness. And in that moment, you will come back to the commands of God. And previously, they seemed to be a burden. Previously, they seemed to be a straitjacket. Previously, they seemed to be something to escape. But now when you come back, you find that the commandments of God are the sweet path of life. 
They're what it looks like to love Jesus back in your actions. And then, then you will find a new motivation to obey. Then you will find yourselves holy and growing in holiness. In fact, you will find yourself being reshaped into the image of your creator, into the image of Jesus Christ himself. You will find that the snake was lying when he was saying you could be like God through autonomy, but Jesus Christ is saying, yes, it's true, you can be like God in intimacy with me. And so Emmanuel, the judgment of God, it counters our fear with hope. It counters our pride with humility. It counters our moral disaster with a new motivation to holiness. So look at the judgment of God, but particularly look at the cross of Christ. And there you will find a gift which will bring forth gratitude, which will resolve in intimacy for which you were made. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.